There are sources of vitamins that are present in nature that all life needs. You know, all life needs vitamin D3, whether it's a plant or an animal or a human. What dictates the source that we need is, you know, what, what type of being we are. A human and a human digestive system requires these nutrients in animal form. Just because you mesh a bunch of powders together and it has something that, you know, it says on the label, it has this, just because you consume it doesn't mean you're absorbing it. If we achieve a base nutrient density from these animal foods, you know, what should the rest of our diet really be composed of? Can it be completely carnivorous? Are there benefits to consuming these plant foods? One thing I knew for certain is that the plant foods that I have access to are not reminiscent of what our ancestors used to eat. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host Seamland and our guest today is Frank Tefano. Frank is a YouTuber who makes videos about nutrition and food. Frank, welcome to the show. What's going on? Thank you guys for having me. Uh, as he said, I do fitness, nutrition focused videos oriented around kind of the nutrient density of animal foods in particular. Hmm. Yeah, you do have like a more specific way of uh, talking about nutrition than you know the general fitness advice that focuses solely on like macros and such so yeah, i really enjoy your videos about the nutrient density as well as like the micronutrients that most people tend to kind of overlook but uh, can you give like a maybe short uh, backstory about uh, where you're coming from and how did you end up here yeah sure so i was really big into like bodybuilding weightlifting just fitness in general when i was younger in high school college and it got to a point where I felt like I was wasting my time. I didn't feel good. I didn't have energy. You know, I was literally eating pounds and pounds of like sweet potatoes and rice every day, not feeling good. So I started actually trying to figure out what a healthy diet was. And some of the resources of information I came across were anything from, you know, seeing what indigenous peoples ate. Uh, there are two really specific books that turned me on to it. Weston Price Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, as well as The Fat of the Land. And the first book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, is about a dentist who went around in the early 1900s because he was fascinated why these indigenous people didn't have any cavities, you know, why these tribes were free of dental decay. Mm. And the second book, The Fat of the Land, is about an Arctic explorer who spent many, many years with various Inuit Eskimo groups of people and observed their all-meat diet. And the one constant thing between these two groups of people was they were kind of free of the modern degenerative diseases. And they had a very, very specific level of physical development where you know, they had no need for glasses. They had no need, you know, nothing wrong with their teeth. They were all of similar height, stature, and, and facial development, mm -hmm. almost like an animal is supposed to be in nature specific to an area in a way. And after looking into this, uh, you know, I read a couple other books like Norga Gaddis, Primal Body, Primal Mind. And I was starting to piece things together in my head. I was like, well, if all of these groups of people consumed a certain amount of their calories from animal foods, both because it was the only source of nutrition in nature they had access to, and that they have all well they're pretty much in optimal physical health 
what about energy? You know, if I have no energy eating four to five pounds of carbohydrates a day, maybe a ketogenic metabolism is the way to go and the way to try it. So I was like, well, that makes sense. So how would you do a ketogenic metabolism on this diet? And that's essentially what they were in because they were really eating a large amount of animal food. So after piecing that together, you know, I started trying it and this was about six years ago now. And eventually looking into the science, looking into why the diet actually works, trying to understand the nutrient profile, that came with a lot of time. Uh, I, I was fortunate in a sense that I took that initial information for granted and it clicked in my head logically in like an appeal to nature sort of way. Mm. But, you know, it literally took me three, four, five years of, you know, researching these foods, reading about these people, trying to correlate, okay, well, why is this food making you feel a certain way because of this vitamin content? you know, how to get the vitamins in certain balance, what things you have to do. And after I understood the science behind these foods, what their nutrition value is, you know, why certain foods require certain preparations, everything made a lot more sense. It wasn't just, oh, these indigenous people ate this. It wasn't just, oh, this food, uh, you know, they fed this food to the pregnant woman. It wasn't that. It was literally, if you look on paper, this food has the highest amount of this vitamin and the main thing that I correlated was, oh, well, I mean, people don't really realize that if we're looking at the paper value nutrition of a food, mm-hmm. there's different forms of vitamins in the plant foods and the animal foods. So right. tying in, you know, the, the indigenous group thing, the actual face value nutrition of these animal foods and the lack of nutrition available in a lot of plant foods, everything kind of made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like uh, they say that calories are calories, uh, or like even macronutrients are macronutrients. But uh, at the end of the day, it's still gonna depend upon like the kind of the context of the situation of how those things get uh, affected by whether hormones or these different micronutrients and uh, the person individually. So it's 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 not like the that uh, on paper is everything is clear or such. But you know the whereas in the reality, the results will differ because of like like you said or because of like the bioavailability of certain nutrients and such so it's it's never like a, a one size fits all um a color is a color thing mm-hmm. yeah i'm not really sure where the general kind of fitness community stands right now on the macronutrient thing but you know the if it fits your macros crew has been going strong for a while and they're still going strong uh, i think in the context of you know, if the fat, the protein, and the carbohydrate is equal in the diet, people generally assume that the other things don't really matter. Mm. But when you have vitamins and fats and substances in food that literally dictate, you know, hormonal metabolic processes, you know, it becomes very clear and apparent that uh, there's definitely something to be said about just the differences in general between diets, even with the same macronutrient ratio. Mm. You know, we don't even have to go into how the food digests. Obviously, you know, if someone eats a steak and it becomes, you know, the waste is very little from what they eat or they eat some corn and it comes out the same way it came in. Obviously, you know, I mean, those are two different macronutrients, but there is a big degree of uh, availability difference. Mm. And for uh, the macro micro crowd that used to think that, oh, well, you know, you could just eat whatever, take a multivitamin. And you don't have to worry about anything else. 
there's been increasing evidence that ha- that took them out of that mindset of that even like macronutrient ratios didn't matter because there was a point where people just said a calorie is a calorie. Mm. And, and then we have like, if you go into any ketogenic forum or read about all these stories about people on keto losing weight, or you look into, I mean, there's very, very specific studies where they will feed people, you know, they'll feed one group, a thousand grams of carbs, a thousand grams of protein, another group, a thousand grams of fat. And there's drastic differences despite a similar caloric amount in the diets so uh but it's really just unfortunate how uh you know people look at uh kind of the end result and what they're trying to achieve as opposed to you know what they're physically putting in their body yeah for sure like uh, even even the metabolic state uh, itself whether you are in ketosis or you're not in ketosis those things they will still affect uh, the reaction of the body to those nutrients and such uh, but you yourself, uh, you're following like a primarily carnivorous type of diet, am I right? Yes. I mean, I am. I'm, I've pretty much been on the carnivore diet for like six years. Hmm. How, do you, how did you start and uh, what, what's your like, journey been throughout this process? So six years ago, I was already into like eating, you know, eating raw liver, cod liver oil, like really high quality animal food. So for me, what most people know is the carnivore diet you know, it was never really appealing to me. I even remember back then when I started the diet, I looked in the zero carb diet, the carnivore diet existed at the time. Mm-hmm. And I looked into it, but I said, oh, this isn't what I follow because, you know, there aren't really any principles of nutrient density. There aren't any principles of ketosis. So my basis and understanding of what the healthy diet was is to, okay, let me consume these high quality animal foods from you know that these indigenous people used to eat mm-hmm. and then it was okay how do i maintain a ketogenic metabolism and do this and by doing those things you know i finally got my energy back that i was kind of seeking you know when i was eating those 4 to 5 pounds of sweet potatoes on the diet but you know there are other elements to my health that i i also explored in addition to that So, you know, there was like vitamin D3 levels being optimal, you know, the source of water that I'm drinking, the exercise. So for me, it was overall trying to figure out what the optimal health plan was in a way. And I've never really been in a position where I've necessarily advocated for a completely carnivorous diet. I've always, you know, I mean, even in these, excuse me, even in these indigenous groups, Every single one of them consumed a certain amount of calories from plant foods. doesn't matter if it was the Eskimos. doesn't matter if it was the Plains Indians. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, the amount of animal foods in the diet calorically were anywhere from 65 to 75%. So in my mind, I was like, well, if we achieve a base nutrient density from these animal foods, you know, what should the rest of our diet really be composed of? Can it be completely carnivorous? Are there benefits to consuming these plant foods? One thing I knew for certain is that the plant foods that I have access to are not reminiscent of what our ancestors used to eat. And in a lot more recent cases, you know, in the past few thousand years, grains have replaced those wild plant foods. So although humans can still be in good physical health, let's say they eat 60% animal protein, and 40% grain, uh, grain uh, carbohydrate, 
it's they have a similar level of physical development and absence of disease that these indigenous people had. Although, you know, consuming grain is not as ideal as consuming wild plant foods, it's not to say that these people weren't perfectly healthy even consuming grains as long as the animal foods were present in their mm. diet. Right. Uh, very, very interesting thing there. It's it's more like... So, uh, the, so the presence of these uh, animal products with the essential fatty acids and other nutrients is more important than uh, the exclusion of all plants and uh, and such. It's for, for drastically more important right. because if we look at blue zones now, uh, blue zones consume maybe thirty percent of their calories from these high quality animal foods, and the seven and then seventy percent from plants. What dictates how much animal food you need in your diet is developmental stages of life. So there's a reason they fed specific foods to pregnant women, nursing women, and children right. because, uh, and this is a big reason that mortality rates were really high in certain groups of people too. If they didn't have enough nutrition from animal foods to get past you know, the first few years of life, they couldn't survive because in nature, the only food that you can really feed a baby that's accessible in any real caloric amount it's going to be breast milk or you know meat, essentially. You can't really obtain, there weren't these modern foods and you can't feed a baby wheat because that's the only grain or whatever single grain they would have access to. You can't just feed a baby one grain and expect it to grow. Mm. So a lot of this eating of plant food was completely out of necessity, but they made sure to try to get these animal foods in higher amounts during specific stages of development. Mm. So you know, can these people survive with lower amounts of animal foods than are not ideal? Yeah. But I mean, we see even now very apparent differences in stature. Mm. Uh, I mean, I know the Netherlands is like one of the tallest countries in the world. And then you have Italy, which has some of the shortest people in the world. So, well, maybe not shortest people in the world, but you know, the stature is drastically different in, in these two places. And I would correlate that directly to a heavily grain-based diet in Italy. Mm -hmm. over the past few thousand years and you know very high animal food consumption in the netherlands right. and that's why these dutch people are so tall so just because you don't get animal foods in your diet in large amounts doesn't necessarily mean you'll be unhealthy it's just you know what's ideal you know mm -hmm. these indigenous groups these people always generally reached a certain height the men usually being around uh, six foot tall or over and in the indigenous groups where there was plentiful animal consumption, uh, they tended to be even taller than that. Mm. But it's very apparent that once you get past those key stages of development in life, you kind of no longer need those building blocks of nutrition as much. Mm. Of course, they will help you be healthy. And the more of them you eat, the more kind of nutrition and, and building blocks your body ha is able to achieve. But there's a much larger margin of error than a growing child. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, so there's like this critical uh, development periods for a growing organism where they do need more the, uh, these, these animal products or these, uh, these nutrients that you get from animal uh, foods. And uh, that that's going to help to kind of develop properly, you know, develop a proper jawline, proper mm -hmm. bones and uh, skin and everything else. Well, if you think about... I hate to bring up plants, but if you think about planting a seed, if, if the climate isn't right, if the soil doesn't have the right nutrients, 
you know, if it's not moist enough, the, the plant is never going to sprout, let alone grow. Hmm. But once that plant has grown, uh, maybe into, let's say it's a tree, once that tree is many, many years old, you know, if the tree has one or two dry seasons, it's not just going to die. Hmm. But theoretically speaking, if you got pregnant and there was a dry season and famine, the baby likely isn't going to make it. So there is an essence of necessity in the sense of like what foods we used to eat. So the grain consumption, the plant consumption, that was eaten out of necessity for calories. The animal food consumption, that was eaten for development specifically. Mm, yeah. You know, the reason that, you know, we're not sitting in trees right now and, you know, we're in our house on these computers mm. is because essentially we were able to procure large amounts of these animal foods while maintaining a, like a, a very ideal like brain to body mass ratio with right. relatively low muscle mass in comparison. Yeah, yeah. it's like it also comes to show that you know that's one of the reasons why there isn't actually like an indigenous, fully plant based society either uh, in that you can find like a hunter gatherer tribe that you know one hundred percent eats only plants and vegetables. So they're always incorporating some uh, animal foods in their diets, even like the uh, like the Indian society, like the Ayurveda tradition, also incorporates. Is is like a primarily like a veg vegetarian diet, but they still have like ghee or eggs or some dairy in their diet, just because of the critical component of the helping to kind of help the body to develop properly and uh, get these uh, essential fatty acids and such. But what, what kind of nutrition does like animal foods have that plants don't have, so to say then? Mm -hmm. well, what's interesting is if we look at the, the vitamins and minerals that occur in just grass and we look at the forms of those vitamins in grass and then we look at what a cow digests them into, or ruminant animal, they essentially transform those vitamins that are in the grass into different versions of the vitamins in their tissue. Mm. So, you know, carotene in grass turns into retinol in the animal tissue. The vitamin K1 in the grass ferments and turns into vitamin K2 in the animal's tissue. Mm. So there are sources of vitamins that are present in nature that all life needs. You know, all life needs vitamin D3, whether it's a plant or an animal or a human. Mm -hmm. What dictates the source that we need is, you know, what, what type of being we are. You know, a human and a human digestive system requires these nutrients in animal form. Mm. And I mean, if anyone would say what makes a diet healthy, you know, I think a lot of people would have to agree that it's the vitamin content. And the lack of understanding of why that's important is the main barrier to get over here because every single vitamin has very specific and complicated functions and not only complicated, they're very general. You know, if you look up B vitamins, pretty much every B vitamin is overlapping like brain function, cardiac function, heart health. Like there's so many overlapping things. Hmm. Uh, same thing with vitamin A. You know, if you look up what retinoic acid is in the body, it's, you know, beta carotene in the animal converts to retinol in the animal's tissue. When you consume that retinol in the animal form, your body converts it into retinoic acid. Retinoic acid is a precursor to cell differentiation and gene expression. So literally every cell in your body is regulated by this one vitamin. 
So as general as that is of a function, literally saying, oh, well, whether your body is able to dictate if it needs to make a white blood cell or a red blood cell or the amount or the changing literally is dictated by one single vitamin. It's a very large concept to grasp and kind of apply to, you know, what it physically does in your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Like if we look at vitamin D3, like we know what ideal levels are supposed to be if we look at indigenous groups, but in regards to like paper value function of vitamin D3, well, people will say, yes, it stimulates a hormone in the kidneys to absorb calcium into the bones. Uh, vitamin K2 helps with that as well. And, it, you know, we can look at specific metabolic functions all day, but the reality is there is truly a lack of almost like a database of where you can actually look at and understand mm. uh, the aspects of all these vitamins. and even even uh, now, like people do really understand the importance of certain things like essential fatty acids, omega threes, uh, you know, vitamin B twelve, iron. There are a lot of nutrients that people prize. Like, I mean, what what are the ones for pregnant women? Folate. Uh, there's a lot of nutrients that people are physically trying to get in their diet now. It's just the other ones haven't kind of reached that level yet. So, you know, people are taking fish oil pills, people are taking, uh, pregnant women are taking prenatal vitamins, you know, no one's taking, uh, and even now, I mean, people are taking vitamin D3, a lot of people are supplementing K2, Uh, even the general public is becoming more familiar with the importance of these vitamins and this information. Mm -hmm. And I, I think people would be in agreement of that. The only correlation that's missing is that these vitamins occur naturally in animal foods. And that there's a few of them that haven't kind of been, you know, the importance of them hasn't been discovered yet in a sense. Mm-hmm. And also how consuming them in equal amounts is necessary and that the forms that are in animal foods come in like a complete package in a way that mm-hmm. you're able to, you know, use the cholesterol, use the fat, use all these vitamins to absorb the other ones. Yeah, and you're getting them like in the right ratios as well, so to say that... Uh, they're not going to cause any interference with the absorption and such because if you take uh, like a multivitamin, <laughs> then you 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 kind of block the absorption of certain certain um, certain um, uh, vitamins and minerals if you kind of take them all together and you get like too much of them either as well. So like more isn't always kind of better as well. Exactly, I think a multivitamin is an excellent example of plant versus animal food because if you look at a multivitamin and look at the size of it and you think that it can give you your complete nutrition, you have got to be crazy. Because if you take liver or fish eggs, the most nutrient-dense foods in nature, if you wanted to obtain an adequate amount of vitamins for the day from these foods, you'd have to consume like 50 to 100 grams of the food. And that's several pretty large mouthfuls of the food. Mm. So how if those are the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, how could a physical pill the size of your thumbnail supplement that in any way? Mm-hmm. And if we actually want to just talk about, as opposed to using that like logical thing, if we want to talk about what's actually in multivitamins, this is where the argument of the plant versus animal form of the vitamins comes up. You know, What form of magnesium is in this pill? Is it mag- 
like what form of collated mineral? Is it magnesium glycinate? Is it magnesium malate? Is it magnesium citrate? Is it, you know, there, is it magnesium oxide? There's 20 different forms of each mineral and each one has a different bioavailability. Uh, and with enough knowledge, you can understand that, okay, well, the form of magnesium that occurs in animal foods might be magnesium taurate. And magnesium bound to a taurine molecule has a much higher availability than magnesium bound to, say, an oxalic acid molecule that might occur in some sort of plant food. So just because you mesh a bunch of powders together and it has something that, you know, it says on the label, it has this, just because you consume it doesn't mean you're absorbing it, right. whether it's because it's, and in particular, it's because of the form of the vitamin. I mean, it'd be impossible to mesh that much animal concentrate of a vitamin. I mean, there's literally no such thing as like a retinol supplement. It's only contained in animal foods like liver. Right. Uh, there are vitamin K2 supplements that they make, and, but the, the whole supplement thing is, uh, you know, a lot of them that are made, it, they use hexane solvents, extraction processes that are very far from natural. And although there are supplements like cod liver oil, vitamin D3 that are excellent for maintaining health and that I do recommend people take, all of this can be done in nature in an ideal way. So hmm. by doing it the natural way, you kind of remove the risk of trying to have to figure out, okay, how much magnesium do I have to eat or how much sun do I need? Or, uh, you know, instead of yeah. saying, all right, well, I need to take 10,000 IU of D3 to get my levels to 65 nanograms per milliliter, you can say, oh, no, I'm just going to get a couple hours of sun a day. Hmm. You know? And unf I mean, unfortunately, most people don't have time for that. But <laughs> Uh, you know, and then it's like, oh, well, how much vitamin A do I need? How much K2 do I need? I get asked these questions every day. Hmm. And I'm like, well, why don't you look at an animal and say, okay, well, an animal has, let's say a goat has 50 pounds of consumable meat on it. And the liver of the goat weighs two pounds. The kidneys weigh a pound total. The brain weighs this much. This weighs that much. You can correlate the nutrient content of those organs and the meat and say, okay, well, if you consumed a whole animal, this is the nutrition you would get. So theoretically speaking, if you ate nose to tail, if you ate in a natural way, and you lived in a natural way in the sun being physically active, all of these things and vitamins that we're talking about, they would just come inherently. Hmm. The, the real difficult part for our ancestors was really not starving to death. It wasn't really, yeah. you know, there was no concern about like trying to figure out what vitamins they need or getting them because everything kind of came inherently in nature. Mm. Yeah, it is, it is kind of funny that you would kind of get all the entire package from these animal foods, so to say, uh, all the like the essential nutrients. Uh, and you mentioned that, you know, the, the idea of getting these nutrients from animal foods comes from the idea that uh, the animals convert the energy from the sun into like a bioavailable source for humans, so to say. We we can't, we don't like, we aren't able to digest grass and we don't really get that much energy from directly from the sun. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like this process of the first, the plants are going to photosynthesize, you know, create oxygen and such, and they will kind of get those nutrients into themselves. And uh, when the animal eats it, then that becomes like a bioavailable source for the human body as well more. So it's, it's yeah, if your it's body, if your body doesn't have cholesterol, if your body doesn't have vitamin A, 
that you're getting in your diet, it, it can't really absorb vitamin D3 from the sun. That's why you have all these people now on these poor diets that are lacking in nutrients and they go in the sun and they just burn and mm. their D3 levels don't go up. And then you have people who, uh, you know, they think that 15 minutes of sun exposure on their hands and face is going to do anything. <laughs> it's completely crazy. I can't tell you how many people have gone on a ketogenic or a carnivore diet and they're suddenly like, oh, I can tan now. <laughs> and there's something to be said about the nutrition of animal foods and them allowing your body to actually metabolize vitamin D3 properly. Uh, and even though these animals convert D2 from the, uh, either the food, you know, they're metabolizing vitamin D in their tissue and it's, it's contained in the animal flesh. But if the animal isn't in the sun, it can't get D3 in the tissue. Right, yeah. So if you're not, if, you know, the animal wasn't on summer pasture before you slaughtered it, or it was stuck in a barn all winter and then you slaughtered it, yeah. there's no real significant vitamin D3 content. That's why when we look at foods that have vitamin D3, they tend to be wild caught fish because, you know, mm -hmm. what's a fish doing? A fish is consuming the plankton, the algae, all the organisms that have the vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. And then right when they kill the fish, it's still present in the, in the tissue. Right. Uh, definitely some interesting parallels yeah. in nature. Yeah, it's a good point, so to say, that the quality of the food still is like a huge, or like it's very important, so to say, that the, it's, it's not, it's not going to matter what you eat, but also like what you ate, ate, so to say, that if the animal is, let's say, you get exposed to sunlight, you get exposed to green pastures and the proper nutrition, then the meat itself will also be more nutritious, so to say, and uh, it's going to be a, like a significant difference. But what kind of, what kind of uh, other uh, foods would, would be like highly nutritious that you would eat like on a carnivore diet? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting thing to bring up because if you go into a store and you look at a gallon of milk and say, oh, well, Frank said animal foods have a lot of nutrients. That gallon of milk from those conventional cattle might not actually have any significant amount of nutrients yeah. from what the animal was fed to the pasteurization and homogenization process. If you compare a grocery store gallon of milk to a gallon of milk from a raw, you know, grass-fed mm. animal, those are two different foods. You might as well not even put them on the same planet. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the key things here. When we talk about nutrient density of these animal foods and the animal foods that these people ate, we're inherently assuming that they are high quality because, mm. I mean, people know, you know, I mean... I'm sure people like people in the United States have watched like cooking videos in the UK and they're like, Oh, why are their eggs so much different colored? Or <laughs> they, they've heard that they have to use dye to change the color of the farmed salmon. So granted the food is high quality. We're pretty much looking at any sort of kind of complete food. And by complete food, I mean, like a whole animal in a sense. If it's something that can sustain someone in and itself, it will be very high in vitamins. So like an oyster, for instance. An oyster is one complete organism in a very kind of compact space. Mm -hmm. And that oyster or that mollusk, that clam, that clam will provide every fat-soluble vitamin you need in your body. It might not be in incredibly high amounts, but Oysters, for instance, are one of the most nutrient-dense foods. They have, I think it's like 10 times the amount of B12 that muscle meat has. 
They're incredibly high in zinc, incredibly high in copper, tons of vitamins, especially for their caloric amount. So mm. an oyster is an example of a compact, nutritionally complete food. Right. Uh, fish eggs, uh, you know, in, in the female fish, are another example of a nutritionally complete food. And if you think about what a fish egg is, it's essentially a tiny fish in an egg. Yeah. And you can replicate the nutrition of a fish egg by eating the whole fish, including the brain of the fish, the liver of the fish, you know, the belly of the fish, every mm. part of the fish that people don't normally eat. Mm. So by doing this, you can obtain the complete nutritional profile of the animal. Uh, so basically in like fish and land animals and most larger animals, most of the nutrition is contained in the organs and fat. Mm. And we do see that preference in hunter-gatherers. They tended to only eat the fatty parts as well as the organs. Uh, in the case of things like shellfish and dairy, dairy products are unique in the sense that they are nutritionally complete in themselves because of how the cow or the sheep or the goat transfers the vitamins in her body into the milk. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with eggs. Eggs are a nutritionally complete food. So before anyone's like, oh, organs are icky. Yeah, I mean, dairy and eggs and shellfish mm -hmm. and a lot of seafood there are indigenous groups that live next to each other, like the NERS, for example, N-E-U-R-S. They were fishermen, and they were just as tall and impressive as the Maasai, who mm. were cattle herders. Mm. So, you know, the food that they're consuming is high in fat soluble vitamins. That's all that really matters. There's many ways to obtain complete nutrition. Mm. You just have to understand that, um, and this is more popular in like, the farm to table movement in restaurants, people would be familiar with like nose to tail eating yeah. where, you know, you're eating every single part of the animal and utilizing it. But mm. nose to tail eating is a lot easier for a glass of milk than it is for a cow. Like right. a glass of milk, you just drink, you know, you're drinking milk, you're, yeah. you're eating cheese, you're having cream, you're having butter. And that's it. If you want to eat nose to tail of a cow, you got the liver, you got the brains, you got the kidney, you got yeah. every single part mm. of the animal to consume. Hmm. But once you develop an understanding of, you know, what foods have what vitamins, uh, you know, there are some outliers that are very apparent. Like we said, oysters earlier and ruminant animals, liver is kind of the superfood here. Yeah. Liver is unique in a sense that it has the highest retinol content out of any food. Hmm. Uh, if you look at an RDA, it's like 2,400% of the RDA of retinol and the next highest food is like 30 percent for eggs mm -hmm. so we're talking like a hundred times the amount of retinol in the liver of this animal and i mean the liver is where the animal stores nutrients for the winter for whatever mm -hmm. so theoretically speaking if you had an animal that starved and you measured the levels of vitamin a in their liver it could be insignificant actually mm -hmm. so again the quality correlates directly here but liver in general, for instance, although it is known for its very high retinol content, it literally has every single vitamin you need. It has all the B vitamins. And not only that, it's incredibly high in the B vitamins. Okay. You know, if someone has a B12 deficiency or they're anemic, uh, you know, the amount of iron and B12 in beef liver eclipses muscle meat by multiple times. Liver has vitamin C. Liver has small amounts of vitamin E. Liver has vitamin K2. Uh, the more available form of vitamin K. Liver even has some DHA in it. Hmm. 
there's literally no nutrient missing in liver. And if you were going to form a complete diet, you could, and you only had liver to eat, the only thing you might have to add would be a source of fat and omega-3. Mm. Uh, the same thing could be said about a food like salmon roe or fish eggs in general. Fish eggs have every single vitamin and mineral your body needs. Whereas, you know, liver might have an incredibly high retinol content. Fish eggs are known for their very high DHA content. Mm. So, you know, once you kind of understand what vitamins you need in the body, what vitamins occur in certain animal foods, you can start correlating to, okay, how do I actually formulate a diet now? What the hell do I do? And uh, for me, it's pretty simple because if you have vitamin A, if you achieve your vitamin A intake, the only way to get vitamin A is liver. So by consuming liver, you already check the boxes for those other nutrients. Now, mm. if you consume liver in your diet, you know, what other nutrients could you be low on? Well, liver isn't, doesn't have the highest amount of K2 in it, and you kind of need a lot of K2 to metabolize vitamin A as well as vitamin D3. So maybe we want another source of K2 in the diet. So let's say we throw in some egg yolks, and now we're getting a decent amount of K2. But once you've achieved a food that has a large amount of K2, the food has to be a high-quality animal food because the vitamin K content correlates directly to what the animal ate. So we can assume if you already have your vitamin A intake for the day, if you already have your vitamin K2 intake, that there aren't really going to be any other nutrients your body needs. Hypothetically, you might want some preformed DHA from fish, but it's really interesting. Like, like We could talk about all the nutrients all day, how complicated it is. But at the end of the day, we could say, okay, just consume something nose to tail or just mm. like get the, if you consume animal foods that are high in vitamin A and K2, you're pretty much going to achieve all the other vitamins inherently. Mm. Uh, you know, granted you consume quality foods. Uh, it, it's a lot simpler than, you know, it's made out to be. Right. Yeah, it, it is kind of, it goes back to show that, you know, yeah, uh, these complete food sources, whether that be like an egg or uh, like a eating nose or tail, that uh, the all the nutrients will be in that, in that uh, kind of food, food uh, group, so to say. And uh, you would simply have to know of, uh, how many of these certain nutrients you're going to get. Like you don't necessarily have to eat uh, like fish roe if you do get like other quality dha sources into your diet yeah. so to say and uh, or if you if, if you get like uh, plenty of egg yolks and uh, liver for for example so it's it comes back to show that yeah educating yourself about it and uh, knowing how to kind of how to incorporate these different superfoods into your diet because yeah like liver and fish roe in my opinion as well like they are <laughs> probably the most nutrient dense uh, foods on the planet definitely and uh, like most people kind of tend to skip out on eating like nose to tail and e eating like uh, only certain parts of the animal while kind of wasting away on the actual the most nutritious parts like the liver and such you don't even you don't even have to eat like a bunch of liver you can you know just eat a little bit while still getting plenty of uh, enough of these uh, nutrients for for your given day and you don't like have to make it the staple of your diet yeah it's unfortunate i think it's you know there's multiple factors to this people don't understand what vitamins are in these foods and they don't understand the importance of the vitamins that are in these foods mm. uh, and they don't realize you know how, how kind of easy it is to just consume you know eggs yeah. or dairy or 
yeah. have a bile liver every day. It's, but that, that's the biggest thing. Like the USDA nutrition database, if you look up, you know, an egg, it's, it's not going to tell you that an egg has every vitamin you need. It's not going to say that egg has vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin K, DHA. It's not going to say that. Mm. You know, same thing with, uh, I mean, just really food. It's unfortunate. Uh, even if, you know, people did understand that, you know, the access to these quality animal foods, especially in America, is, uh, is, is pretty poor. Mm. It really is. Yeah, but how do, how can people know if they are deficient in uh, some of these nutrients besides taking like a specific blood test? Is there any signs they can kind of I, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and told me, Frank, I ate some liver or I ate some salmon roe. Or I have people send me emails every week. They ate these foods and they felt energized. Mm. Same thing with like being in the sun and taking vitamin D3. There are things inherent to kind of like human metabolism that we can consume in the diet as well as things that can be obtained in nature from exercise to sun that will physically make you feel better almost immediately when you eat them, when you consume them. Right. Uh, but to actually know if you're deficient in these vitamins, I mean, you know, if you haven't been consuming high-quality animal foods your whole life, you're going to be deficient in these vitamins. It's as right. simple as that. Uh, just about, it, it's really crazy. Every single person I've spoken to that has had blood work done, their D3 levels are reminiscent of someone who's never been in the sun in their whole life. <laughs> it's completely crazy. Mm -hmm. And we can assume the same thing for, uh, you know, the, the nutrition of the fat-soluble vitamins. I mean, yes, it's not usually as bad because people do store fat-soluble vitamins for like times of need in the winter. and you know, some people do get, especially in like European countries where the food quality is higher, like the Ukraine, these people do get decent amounts of high quality animal foods in their diet. I know like Russians love red caviar, salmon roe. Hmm. So there's definitely something to be said about the, the presence of high quality animal foods in some people's diets. But uh, for the most part, people aren't really getting them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, let's say... Mm, I was going to say that, uh, yeah, like even if people do, like, let's say they, like for energy production itself, purely energy production, then uh, even like the animal products themselves help with the production of energy, like carnitine helps with fat-based metabolism and you get carnitine primarily from uh, red meat and such and creatine as well. So, so like yeah, if people tend to have been skipping out on these foods, for a certain period of time and that they do introduce them then they immediately do notice like a boost in energy because of that as well and uh, it's like carnitine helps with like being or helps with uh, mobilizing fat stores and producing energy and ATP from that so but uh, can you get like too many of these uh, nutrients so to say that you know there's all there's probably like you you obviously can't get like too much iron or too much uh, vitamin A yeah I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. And a lot of topics that have come up are things that are commonly overlooked. So people are concerned about hypervitaminosis A and consuming too much vitamin A. And the thing to keep in mind here is your body wants to store fat-soluble vitamins for the winter. So you need to obtain an amount that would correlate with nature. So, you know, you can't just eat one pound of liver a day because how would that be possible in nature? <laughs> like, like people ask me, Frank, how much liver should I eat every day? Well, how much K2 are you eating? How much sun are you getting? 
if you're out in the sun 10 hours a day and you're guzzling down egg yolks, yeah, maybe you can eat a, like a pound of liver a day. But for the average person, you need to be consuming these vitamins in equal amounts. And right. on the carnivore diet, people don't usually run into this problem because they're eating muscle meat, they're eating ribeye. They're actually, if anything, deficient in these nutrients, let alone getting excess of them. But in order to obtain a high level of vitamin intake consistently, you have to be mindful of what foods are high in which vitamins mm -hmm. and how to kind of obtain them in, in these amounts. You know, if you're going to eat, you know, set, you want to set some standards like, okay, well, if I eat 50 to 100 grams of liver a day, I want to make sure to eat five to 10 egg yolks for the K2. I don't make sure to take my vitamin D3 supplement of 10,000 IU to simulate the vitamin D3 from the sun. Mm -hmm. So realistically, you want to try to replicate an even amount of these vitamins that you would get in nature. Now, things like iron, uh, iron is not a concern because of the precursors that needs to be metabolized. Uh, you know, the reason iron is going to sit in your stomach or your colon you know, if you don't have enough vitamin A or vitamin C in the body to absorb it. Uh, and that, that happens when you're consuming it outside of the context of nutritious animal foods. You know, if you're consuming like processed meat that's really high in iron and your body is not getting the vitamins needed to metabolize it. Um, but I, I don't think there's any concern about going too crazy with any of the vitamins unless, you know, you're just trying to like overload on liver for some reason. Right, that's right. That's the, that's the real only, only problem. The issue with that is you're consuming liver in an unnatural amount. Mm. Uh, it's essentially what it is. And I think a lot of people would benefit from initially consuming a lot of liver because they're kind of restoring their vitamin stores over you know, what they've been missing for years and years and years. But still, it's not like uh, just because you're deficient, eating more is better. It's better to consume a moderate amount over a longer period of time so your body can absorb and utilize the nutrition mm -hmm. yeah like uh, it's it is unfortunate so to say that uh, we don't get those uh, nutrients uh, as we would in nature like you say that you know if, if you do eat uh, these livers and such then you, you're never gonna eat like several livers in one sitting so to say you if you were if you were to ever get, catch a prey animal or something like that then you only get like a one dose of this uh, vitamin a and such and then you would go through a period of uh, not getting it so to say that it balances it out across the entire week or entire month or so to say like in in modern worlds in the society most people are still gonna eat you know at least something during the day and they have to kind of take into account of okay I'm, i may not want to have like a huge nutrition bomb every every meal so to say because it may lead to yeah like you said hyper vitaminosis and such so to say and uh, you have to kind of still be mindful of how do i replicate the aspect of uh, these fluctuations in nutrients uh, while still being in this uh, modern environment of uh, of uh, food abundance and such yeah if we look at the habits of these indigenous people it brings up a lot of questions because, you know, realistically speaking, if your tribe of people slaughtered an animal, there wasn't enough liver to go around for everyone. Yeah, for sure. And some tribes had customary practices where the hunter would eat the liver of the animal. So it's safe to say that, you know, for optimal physical development, 
is a vitamin like vitamin A necessary in excess? Well, I, I can't really argue against that because the healing properties of vitamin A for like skin health and just cell regeneration are, are really, really are substantial. Hmm. But if we looked at what these people would actually do if they killed a lot, like an animal, they would eat the fat first because they needed energy. And or the bone marrow, or the bone marrow, so they would go. Yeah, yeah. By yeah, by fat. Um, by fat, the preference order was usually bone marrow was at the top. Uh, so if they had bone marrow, they would prefer it over the other parts. Uh, mm. So was the brain tissue. So they really liked the brain marrow, uh, the bone, the brain marrow, <laughs> uh, the the bone marrow and the brain tissue. They really preferred those foods, and then. Their next favorite sources of fat were like the fat around the kidneys, the kidney suet, and then the fatty cuts like the belly. So right. uh, there is a lot of preference for the fatty cuts of the animal. And that's because if you're obtaining your calories from animal foods, you need to obtain a pretty high percentage of your caloric intake for energy from either fat or carbohydrate. And if you're if you only have lean animals, you know, to some degree, I mean it's called rabbit starvation, but if there's not enough fat in the diet, you know, your body simply can't survive. And there's good reason for that. The fat the fat is where the vitamins are usually stored. Mm. So, you know, if we're talking about a ribeye steak, the reason a ribeye steak has vitamins isn't because it's a steak, it's because there's a lot of fat in the steak. Right. You know, the reason a filet mignon is going to be much lower in vitamins than like beef belly is because the fat is where the vitamins are stored in the animal. Mm. So when we're talking about, you know, what these indigenous people used to prize and consume, you know, for both caloric and energy needs and nutrition needs, the fat is where everything was really. You know, there was very, very mm. little need uh, for actually consuming protein. and but when you know meat is not present in large amounts they would just take anything yeah. like there are obvious i mean there are i think it's called the warrior chimpanzees uh these chimpanzees would hunt the smaller monkeys and they would just eat all the monkey and the meat so obviously consuming you know some meat is better than not having any right. at all but there's definitely something to be said about not necessarily humans' ability to procure large amounts of meat itself, but large amounts of fat and nutritious fat yeah. too. Yeah, like it's part of part of the reason why the hunter-gatherers would value uh, these fattier chunks of meat or this fat tissue is like because they probably hadn't eaten anything for like several days in a row, and they've been like severely. Uh, malnourished and severely calorically restricted, so to say. So they needed to replenish their. They wanted to get fat, so to say, from eating those uh, fats. So and uh, they would, you know, restore their energy. Whereas in like the modern world, it may not be that you know advisable for someone who is over already overweight or trying to lose fat. For them, then the fatty tissues aren't. They aren't not going to be like the higher higher list of priorities, so to say. That they're not going to be that important because their body fat is already able to give themselves like enough energy so to say yeah it's, it's interesting that once you put modern foods in the mix uh you know be, be interestingly enough like being fat is not something possible in nature <laughs> yeah. like whatever whatever food you can access in nature even if it's a grain even if you're harvesting wheat 
it's impossible to get overweight in nature due to the amount of labor required to procure your food. Mm. If you're hunting, if you're farming wheat, you know, you're plowing the fields, if you're doing all of these things, you know, if you're right. hunting, you're only consuming animal calories and then wild plants. So obviously on a diet like that, you're not going to put on a lot of fat. Mm. If you're farming and you're doing agriculture, you know, you might not be obtaining as many of your calories from animal foods, but those people were very active all day because they right. had to, they had to farm, they had to do these chores to obtain yeah. their food. So, you know, whether, and, and it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty yeah, so the reasonable. Problem, the problem uh, is that yeah, we're like living in this food abundance and uh, too many calories surrounding us and people don't kind of burn off that domain, that, that many calories. Yeah, if you think about like the difference between a hunter-gatherer group of people and then like an indigenous civilization that is, you know, more civilized in a way, more settled, you know, I mean, there's a difference between like Plains Indians following buffalo and like Swiss people harvesting dairy and living in houses. Mm. There's a big difference between those two groups of people. And what they essentially did was the Plains Indians, you know, they don't mind that nomadic way of life. They're procuring animal foods and it's it's definitely a harder way of living so the swiss people might have decided no i don't want to do that i want to live in a i don't want to run the risk of hunting i want to live in a safe town and get some milk from the cattle make cheese harvest rye bread mm. and just be happy so they the trade-off is okay now they're consuming slightly less animal foods they're harvesting grain so that's just a pretty interesting comparison that, okay, they went, we go from hunting just animal foods and wild plants to still requiring large amounts of animal foods, but replacing some of those wild plants with grains. And then even more recently now, we have so much food abundance that it's like an extreme version of that. Right. It's like now we've even removed, because uh, if you put someone in the life of a Swiss person that had to make bread and cheese all year to survive, you'd say, well, this is like living off the land. Mm. But, but, but then what do you think of the, the hunter? You know, what's that? So we're kind of slowly, not slowly, but there are drastic changes in our lifestyle that are catering to our primitive instinct of what we need to survive, shelter, mm. food, water, comfort. And we've reached a point where it's, become detrimental to our health right uh, and i mean there was a podcast a joe rogan podcast with uh gail said uh forgive the pronunciation on his name but this guy was talking about uh a resort was put up in the jungle and they were throwing out all this cake and dessert in the garbage dump and the monkeys found it so the monkeys started eating this cake and the monkeys literally died from tuberculosis in one generation they went wow. extinct wow. so there's some weird sort of thing that we're doing against nature in a way that a lot of modern medicine is pretty much preventing us from dying on these diets. Right. And, and, and people are still dying, just not as fast as they would without modern medicine. Mm. It's amazing to think that if we didn't have access to teeth cleaning equipment, dentistry, uh, oral hygiene, yeah. if we were like the indigenous people, you know what happened to them? Their teeth would rot out. It would be so painful. They get these abscesses. They would literally die from infections in their yeah. teeth, mm. in nature. 
You know, there are things that we take for granted today that would have just simply killed us outright hmm. uh, without the access to modern medicine. Yeah, even like, uh, you know, although antibiotics do a lot of harm to your gut microbiome and such, like without antibiotics, yeah, we wouldn't have like uh, that high life expectancy either. And most people die <laughs> in some situation or another. I mean, the like bacteria is a little bit above my pay grade, but, you know, there are obviously different strains of bacteria. And, you know, when we feed, this is just an example, but you know, the strain of E. coli that naturally occurs in wild animals, that's not really harmful to consume. Mm. But once you feed a cow grain and you change the acidity of their stomach, the bacteria changes, becomes acid resistant, and that form of E. coli is dangerous to you. So, wow. so some aspect of civilization and us living in close quarters together has harbored unnatural bacteria. Same wow. thing with, uh, I mean, if you just look at how most of the Native Americans died, I think it was smallpox, right? Yeah. You think, oh, well, these people are perfectly healthy on their indigenous diet, and then they get wiped out by a disease they never sailed before. Yeah. So, you know, does this indigenous diet make you immune to any sort of disease or virus? Uh, no, I mean, no, because modern advancements create modern problems, mm. uh, which, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's difficult to kind of fix as well. Uh, but what would be like the uh, argument for eating uh, primarily uh, carnivorous diet with animal foods uh, versus like we, we already kind of came to the terms that, you know, animal foods are, you know, highly nutritious and they do give you like all the essential nutrients that your body needs. But we also came to the conclusion that you don't need a bunch of them. Like you mm -hmm. can microdose these things, so to say. You can eat the bite of liver or take some fish roes or eat a few oysters every once in a while. So why would you want to be having them all the time and like in, uh, as a primary source of calories? So I think if we look at blue zones, you know, they consume 30% of their calories from animal foods and they live very, very long, healthy lives. Uh, granted, all the food they consume is high quality. Uh, so we could safely say that, okay, you know, after developmental stages of life, you know, there are these people consuming 30% animal foods and they're perfectly fine. So the question to answer is, what is the minimum amount of animal foods needed in the diet to be in optimal health? I think that's the real question to answer. But mm. if we look at, you know, the physical stature of these tribes that consumed more animal foods, you know, they were taller, they were stronger, they were faster. So, mm. you know, for, for optimal health, I think it's going to be a matter of, consuming at least 65 to 75 percent calories from animal foods mm. uh, i mean you can still live a long happy healthy life to my understanding consuming far less than that the only thing to be concerned about is you know during those developmental stages you know prenatal pregnancy nursing breastfeeding mm. childhood teenage years those stages of development are where you need to maximize the nutrient intake in the child's diet. You know, mm. if I had to advise someone on the amount of nutrition they needed during these developmental stages, I would say literally as much animal foods as you could possibly eat. Mm. Literally eat, you know, the highest quality animal foods you have access to as much as you want and focus on those foods. Mm. Yeah, like children, children need definitely more, more so to say, and they will be, become more vulnerable to uh, deficiencies uh, just because of that critical time period. Mm -hmm. yeah. it's really this is a really hard question to answer because 
people asking right now might be like, oh, well, you know, the, the average American consumes 30% of their calories approximately from animal foods. That's the same as the blue zones. Hmm. The difference here is the quality of the food. Right. So, you know, talking about food quality and switching over to higher nutrient content foods and better quality foods, removing inflammation from the diet is going to have far more of an impact than, you know, it, let's, hypothetically, let's say you're on a standard American diet. One person follows a blue zone diet of high quality animal foods at 30% and then high quality grains and vegetables and stuff, 70%. And another person just decides to eat grain-fed ribeye all day. I think the first person is going to be healthier. Mm. So it really depends on the quality of the food and what stage in life you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we're, we're at this point where, you know, people are literally deficient, not getting enough of these nutrients at all. So to, it's like almost arguing semantics, trying to say, oh, well, should we go full carnivore or should we do this? People just need to get these nutrients in their diet. You know, mm. we're at that stage where, uh, people aren't even getting the necessary building blocks to heal cells and prevent diseases and things like that, uh, which is unfortunate. So uh, to try to argue for carnivore, you know, it's hard for me to try to argue for carnivore diet versus the inclusion of plant foods when this overarching lack of nutrition is, uh, is like staring me in the face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and not even with just the fat type of vitamins, it's with the vitamin D3 from the sun, right. with activity, with exercise. Uh, I mean, how polluted a lot of our water sources are now is is crazy. Uh, there's just so many elements that, uh, you know, if you're, if like, yeah, if I mean, if you reach that end point where you want to try going full carnivore 100%, you know, to me, like, I, I just feel like that mindset of eating steak all day is what people think it, it's like, but it, it really isn't. You know, mm. it's a lot these diets that these indigenous people followed were, were so different than, you know, if you look at studies done on the Australian Aborigines, uh, the natives to Australia, they literally consumed not hundreds, but thousands of different animal and plant foods, thousands native to their environment. So they might eat, you know, 50 different wild plants in a day. Yeah. They might eat four different animal sources of protein in a day. So the variety that they had in their diet and the extent of nutrition, their gut microbiome is far different than what we have now. But the reason you would want to follow a carnivorous diet is mainly because of the ability to kind of eliminate everything and start from zero. Because if all you're eating is meat, whenever you introduce a food, you're able to gauge your reaction to it. You're able to see how it makes you feel. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier than... Mm. You know, because for a normal person, you know, let's say you want to have scrambled eggs on toast for breakfast. Well, where are you going to get pastured eggs? How are you going to make naturally fermented sourdough bread? You know, for lunch, you want to have, let's say, a, I don't know, a salad. Well, are you going to grow the lettuce in your backyard? Are you going to? A mm. lot of me promoting the carnivore diet has to do with lack of access to quality plant foods. Mm. And also lack of yeah. understanding of how to prepare them properly. Soaking grains, fermenting grains. Okay. Uh, and it's a, it's a, really, it's a lot of work. Mm. You know, for someone to just go buy meat, follow the carnivore diet, the amount of work between doing that and spending five hours making sourdough bread. The reason we made sourdough bread was because of necessity, not because we wanted to eat sourdough bread. 
You know, it's not like these people said, oh, I would love some sourdough bread with my cheese. No, they just didn't have enough cheese to eat only cheese. Mm. Uh, so that's the thing to keep in mind. Although these plant foods were eaten out of necessity, they weren't, you know, I mean, there might have been a few things that they enjoyed here and there, but for the most part, um, it, it was a matter of survival. Mm. So if you, yeah. if you look at plant foods from a survival standpoint, uh, and then there are some medicinal uses and things like that. Um, but whether you decide to go full carnivore, whether you decide to incorporate plant foods in your diet, uh, you know, you kind of have to do your own research on these things and, mm. and kind of formulate, you know, what degree you're willing to follow a diet. Yeah. So, uh, I think like the kind of, at the end of the day, it's going to depend on again, like, uh, are you getting all these essential nutrients and in what amounts, so to say, if you are eating less animal foods and, uh, you're primarily like a plant-based diet, then it's still a good idea to implement these more, more nutrient dense animal, uh, parts like the liver or the fish roe and the oysters, uh, versus if you were to be eating more, a carnivorous type of diet with, let's say, nose to tail, then it's not going to be that big of a priority to have liver all the time, so to say. So it's like the ends of the spectrum. If your if your overall intake of these nutrients is smaller due to increasing primarily plant based, then it would be a better idea to prioritize more nutrient dense animal products and uh, still implement them into your diet in some in some shape or form. Versus on the other on the other hand, if you're already getting more nutrition more nutrition from uh, an animal based diet than uh, the, the, the kind of demand for those uh, nutrient dense organs is also like slightly less than yeah that, I mean that makes a lot of sense I mean because if you're looking to obtain you know a certain amount of nutrition from animal foods uh, generally I guess what we can refer to them as is supplementary animal foods like liver salmon mm. roe eggs, who's that you consume specifically because of their nutrient density. Um, you know, if we were to look at these supplementary animal foods and, and put a number on how many calories you actually need of them in a day, you know, it would be in the few hundred range. So you have to ask yourself, okay, once you consume several hundred calories of these incredibly high quality animal foods, what are you benefiting from consuming more of them? Well, we could say, okay, bodybuilding fat and protein for developmental stages of life. Uh, fat and protein for energy as well. You know, obviously the body loves to use fat for energy. But the main difference between someone consuming 70% of their calories from bison fat and someone consuming 70% of their calories from wheat is the substantially higher like vitamin K2 and omega-3 content. Right, right, right. So, you know, there is a degree of the importance of those nutrients specifically during developmental stages. But... I would say, you know, once you've reached 75% of your calories from animal foods, uh, to me, there's nothing that indicates there's any benefit to going above that in nature. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if we're just talking about what percentage people typically consumed in nature, it was around 65% from animal foods. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're not talking about like obviously going 20, 30% animal foods. It's definitely not ideal. Uh, can, can you live a long life on it? Yes, but arguably the fertility and the health of your sperm and egg and children, I, I mean, I mean if, you, if, if you ask me, uh, well, can I 
you know, only consume this many oysters per day on a primarily plant-based diet and still be healthy. Yeah, but do you want your kids to be five, six, or do you want your kids to be six, three in a few generations? Like, that's the question I would ask you. That's essentially what you're asking me. I'm like, well, you can survive, but humans will make adjustments for the lack of nutrition in the environment. Hmm. It's also, I think, <laughs> it kind of creates this challenge of uh, whether or not you're going to reproduce in the first place, so to say, that if you're not even planning on having children, so to say, then you may not want to have like a highly fertile sperm <laughs> or something. I mean, that's a good point. You yeah. know, the, the reason that fertility is correlated to animal foods in the diet is because if you're able to procure these foods, it's a good time to conceive. Mm. If animal foods are plentiful in nature and your, your hunting is good and you have access to plenty of calories, you know, the health and fertility of the egg and the sperm go up and the chance of having a healthy pregnancy are much higher. Mm. Mm, yeah. And, and also like, uh, it's not always like necessary to maximize all the nutrients, so to say as well. Like, uh, you don't necessarily, it's, it's definitely like optimal to get them in uh, the specific amounts and, uh, still meet your requirements and such, but you know, it's not like mandatory to always hitting all of the, you know, maximal needs for your body all the time and such. And, it would be better off to kind of, in some situations, to also kind of experience this uh, mild deficiency for some periods, simply to kind of replicate the aspect of uh, the cyclical manner of eating in nature, as well as as well as the kind of desensitizing the body towards those nutrients in the future, like having this hormesis aspect of uh, actually absorbing them better in the future if you experience like mild deficiencies. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to bring up. Whereas, you know, let's say hunting was good in the fall and winter comes along, you're not getting vitamin D3 anymore. You're not getting nutrition. You might literally go two, three weeks without eating at some point. Mm. So, you know, depriving the body of nutrition and fasting, or, you know, maybe you have a lot of meat, but you don't have a lot of fat. You don't have a lot of organs, you know, uh, putting the body under these stressors, I think is something that our ancestors would have seen. But in the context of where most people are in their diet and in their lives, this is kind of like min-maxing min in a way. Mm. Uh, I mean, most people on a carnivore diet are pretty averse to fasting in general. I think it's not necessarily warranted by anything. I think they just don't want to, they just like eating steak all day. You know, what do you <laughs> like? Like there, there, without a doubt, there are benefits to fasting and everyone can benefit from fasting. But just as with everything in life, people will try to justify a reason not to do it. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are, there are a whole bunch of carnivores that say, oh, well, organ meats aren't necessary yet. Every indigenous group consumed organ meats. So people will always try to argue for what they would want to do as opposed to what's actually good for them. So hmm. as much as we could try to like perfect this lifestyle and way of living, it's more of a matter of, okay, what's, you know, what's practical and what can uh, we do? Right. But what about uh, plants then and vegetables? Like, uh, would, what kind of a role would they have? And uh, can we still benefit from like the hormetic aspect of having uh, vegetables? When I think of hormesis, I think of, okay, what, what are you actually looking to achieve? Because if you're consuming adequate vitamins and minerals and nutrition in the diet, why would you consume the only reason you consume plant foods is because you either enjoyed them or maybe you like them as a seasoning to your food 
or you had to eat them out of necessity. Those are the reasons you eat plant foods. Hormesis is not a reason that our ancestors would eat plant foods. Is there a beneficial impact on gut bacteria, microbiome? That's up in the air. But if you took two people that were following the same exact diet and you fed one of them, uh, I don't know, what, what would something in like a, a piece of broccoli every two weeks, that person might just get a little gas. And I don't think there's a benefit to doing that. Uh, I mean, outside of the ability to include those foods into your diet regularly, that might be a reason to consume plant foods. But I just really haven't, like when people talk about hormesis and the, and the benefits of added stressors, I really think that in the context of human diet, it's really different. It's like if you had a car and you fill the tank up with gasoline, is putting a little bit of diesel going to stress the engine? In a, I mean, this is probably a terrible analogy, but you know, would you put a little bit of diesel in your car engine just to stress it and make it run better? That, that's kind of what I'm thinking about here. Like, why would you purposely put something that will damage, you know, to build up resistance to it in the future to have an immune response? I think the hormetic effect can be obtained in other ways, such as exercise, such as caloric deprivation. Uh, I think there are ways to achieve hormesis outside of consuming inflammatory foods in a way. Mm. Well, I think like um, part of the reasons why you would want to add some vegetables to your diet is to still get like some of the other uh, longevity boosting benefits or longevity boosting compounds that you don't get from animal products so to say like it's not in my opinion it's it shouldn't be the goal shouldn't be to kind of follow nature 100 percent and replicate everything like that because like we already know like what's what's natural isn't gonna be you know the same as we come across in uh, modern society so to say and we do have like different uh, conditions and different uh, requirements as well so to say so, so the goal isn't gonna be to mimic nature so to say the goal is to simply optimize uh what what what's like the goal so to say if 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 you want to kind of prioritize more longevity as well into into the mix then uh, i think like there is going to be some benefit from having uh, these vegetables maybe maybe even like pure to the fact that like having slightly more vegetables in your diet can help you to maintain somewhat of a calorically restricted state as well by default and such so like uh, simply having some uh, an, uh, simply having like some uh, vegetables will have like an additional benefit beyond just uh, that you would encounter in nature. Yeah, it's it's really hard to say because you know even though you could argue that the forms of vitamins in animals are more available, that doesn't mean that your body can't utilize the vitamins from plant foods at the same time it's utilizing the vitamins from plant foods. Hmm. And th there's definitely something to be something to be said about you know the bacteria produced by uh, the microbiome from certain plant foods, but I, I think the underlying answer here is that you know what is the quality of plant foods you have access to. Course, yeah. I think that's really what we have to look yeah. at. And like you're not gonna get like a hormetic benefit by eating supermarket uh, iceberg lettuce or spinach from yeah, the supermarket. Like such. a giant, like a giant <laughs> apple that's the size of your head, like. Right. You know, we're not talking about that here. We're talking right. about kind of wild plant foods in nature, heirloom grains, heirloom variety stuff. Right, right. Yeah, like uh, they, they can be used as medicine, so to say. And even like the wild plants themselves 
you don't really come across them from the ones in supermarkets. And most conventional vegetables and such are still, uh, you know, sprayed with pesticides, GMOs, everything else as well. So compared to a quality supermarket animal food versus uh, like a, yeah. like the conventional vegetable from a supermarket, then the animal food is still going to be healthier because it's, yeah. it's closer gonna... to nature in a way. Yeah. Like yeah. even though a, p- a piece of grain fed feedlot beef, you know, although that's pretty far from nature, at least that food existed hundreds of years ago, whereas a piece of broccoli that we changed over the course of the past few generations and modernized it from the cruciferous family, you know, these plant foods literally did not exist, you know, with modern agriculture and how we transform foods to make them higher calorie, less nutritious. It's, it's just unfortunate that uh, a lot of these vegetables that we have now are really just empty calories. Mm. Yeah, or like especially fruit, maybe like fruit is a good example of, uh, you know, changed that is has changed drastically, like fruit used to be very fibrous and very low in fructose, actually, versus the ones that we sell in supermarkets is like the completely opposite, zero fiber and a bunch of uh, fructose and, and sugar. Yeah, for fruit, though, it's interesting because that's really specific to certain parts of the world. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in Italy, you could, act, you could have a fig tree that is actually, I mean, yeah, the figs are much smaller than the figs we have now, but they still might be, they still might be quite sweet. But the thing is, you know, how much, how many figs are you going to have every year? For sure. If you come across one tree the whole year and that day you stuff yourself on figs and that's it. Mm. Uh, and even in these tropical areas where they had access to even if they did have access to large amounts of fairly, you know, reasonable caloric fruit, first of all, to harvest that fruit, you know, you're climbing up a tree, like, uh, and then at the end of the day, the fruit doesn't have nutrition. So is fruit necessarily bad for us now? I think it's more of a volume thing. Mm. You know, having access to fruit every day is definitely not natural, especially during the colder months. Uh, I think fruit, hypothetically would be limited to specific times of the year that being said though you know if people used to consume grain for the winter you know to survive Mm. can you make an argument well wouldn't it be better to replace that grain with fruit uh you know modern access to food brings up questions that we never had to answer in nature Mm. Mm. is eating is eating figs in the middle of winter better for you than having wheat bread because you know your ancestors didn't have that choice they had to eat the wheat bread right. so there, there's definitely a lot of questions that you know need to be answered or can be answered if you really want to try to justify you know certain food consumption i think the main thing to take away from this is the importance of the quality of the food and its nutrient density mm. and whether you're applying that to you know later stages of life where the nutrition and the pure vitamin content isn't as necessary to have as in high of an amount than a baby or a growing child would need. Uh, we just need to understand that if we want to see changes and positive changes in food and our health, we have to start supporting these high quality animal foods. Because if you, if you go into a supermarket, if you try to get your hands on these foods, I mean, you eventually might be able to, but by supporting these quality animal foods and by including them in our diet and becoming healthier, uh, not only do we dramatically change, you know, the healthcare system, the health of people in general, 
you know, we're also improving the access to these foods and we're making it so, uh, I mean, really, we can almost take a step back into how food was made years and years ago mm. and, and really just not have to worry or think about what we're putting in our bodies. If, if, you know, if the general consensus is, okay, we need these animal foods and these versions of plant foods are healthy and everyone understands that, then things will really change for the better. I mean, that's a little bit <laughs> optimistic, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's definitely some aspect of, you know, of enjoyment and like culinary uh, skills too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once you've achieved your nutrient density in the diet, you know, there's, I mean, of course, especially holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, you know, social events, uh, you know, once you achieve a base nutrient density in your diet, it's important to not stress the small things too much unless you have severe health problems that become exacerbated by those things. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good takeaway, yeah. And uh, nutrient density is something that yeah, people should pay more attention to, so to say. Uh, yeah, Frank, it's been uh, great talking with you. And before uh, I ask my last question, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so I'm on YouTube under the name Frank Tofano. I do videos pretty much every day on various aspects of nutrient-dense diets. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Post silly pictures. Tweet, tweet angry stuff at people. Uh, I have a website, frank-tofano.com. And uh, yeah, no, you guys could, you know, you guys could reach out to me on any of the social media platforms. If you want to have a discussion, you'll post a comment on my videos. Mm, yeah, they're, they're pretty good and pretty uh, in-depth for, 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 for the nutritional qualities and such. Uh, like well, my last question is, uh, what's this uh, one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Oh man, uh, you know, the biggest thing for me has been being objective and open-minded. Uh, you know, once I discovered all this information about diet and health and, you know, I really started to question almost every single piece of information I came across. So being objective and open-minded allowed me to experiment and experience all aspects of whatever diet I was willing to try. And, and really keeping my mind open allowed me to think logically, figure things out, come to my own conclusions, do a lot of anecdotal research, never dismissing anything. You know, if someone told me this food was good for me, okay, I would try to search why that food was bad for me. <laughs> so really just keeping an open mind, taking everything with a grain of salt, mm. uh, doing my own research. Uh, that, that's something I wish I really, uh, I really wish I value that more initially and in a way kind of listened to myself more and went with like kind of gut impulses in in a way mm. so to speak mm. yeah like that that's good advice so to say of uh, always kind of op- remaining to be open minded and be will- be being being willing to uh, try the things out yeah i mean especially when you know with all the crazy nutrition stuff nowadays when someone brings something up to you and you know you could dismiss it and say, "Oh, that's that's quack stuff," or you could listen to them, try to understand it, and then give them a good reason about why it's quack stuff. You know, mm. there's a difference between how you approach things and uh, how you understand things that can be you know resourceful for both people. Right. Although it's a lot easier to just dismiss it or to stay with your own method of thinking, uh, you know, the lack of open-mindedness and objectiveness in nutrition is it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure uh well frank thanks for coming to the podcast and i uh, really enjoy talking with you it's packed with uh c- packed with like uh, quality information and people are definitely 
learning a lot about it. So thanks. No, you're welcome, guys. I'm excited to see what uh, what you guys think. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Invest in uh, invest in liver stock, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Price of liver is, is gonna go up. <laughs> After they try it once, it won't. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I'll see you around. All right, man. Thank you. Yeah. That's it for this episode of the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on the iTunes or the other social media platforms. Definitely check out the show notes for the topics that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.